0: Welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams Tea Podcast, where you spin the jams and spill the tea. And today we're coming at you with two brand new reviews for two brand new records. We're going to be talking about a band that we've talked about before. We're going to be talking about the Foo Fighters, their new album. But here we
1: are. Is that what it's called?
2: It says it right there. You got to look real close, but it says
1: it. Oh, there it is. What you got to do, Jake, is if you don't know, you've just got to like commit to something and just take the right you know i i feel like it just but I, I also just
0: know me. that the the more wrong i am the more i'm gonna look down and see you laughing at me and i like my my heart shrivels up a little bit when that happens not that it isn't warranted or anything but still we're gonna laugh at but you anyway we're also gonna be talking about another band that we've talked about before uh we're gonna be talking about the newest album from proto martyr formal growth in the desert we covered both medicine at midnight and uh the the ultimate ultimate success success today today in the very early you know halcyon days of the podcast so real full circle moment right here
1: yeah i love these episodes that we're getting to do now more and more frequently where it's like it's not it's the second time or sometimes even the third time we were reviewed a new release from an artist and it becomes like subconsciously, like an excuse to do a better job than we did last time. Not that we did a (laughs) reviewing those records, but certainly, you know, we like to think that we've sharpened our skills and that we've gotten a little bit better at it. And I mean, particularly in the case of the Foo Fighters album where we didn't, we weren't really given a lot to work with, uh, with medicine at midnight. It wasn't an album that inspired a lot of, you know, complicated discourse,
0: though we did cover their album uh, Nothing Left to Lose last year in the after the passing of Taylor Hawkins, which I do think is one of our better record clubs, frankly. So if you haven't seen that, that'll give you a little bit more uh, definition as to where we stand with the Foo Fighters as a whole.
1: Yeah. And, and to be clear, we love the Foo Fighters. We're huge Foo's fans to varying degrees, of course. None more so than Morgan, who I think is better equipped than any of us to give a kind of introduction into this new review. As Jake said, We reviewed There Is Nothing Left To Lose, which I don't know if it's still all three of our favorite Foos albums, but it's mine anyway at this stage. And, you know, a great record. And of course, we reviewed it because of the passing of Taylor Hawkins, wanted to do a tribute, and that felt very fitting as well. That narrative thread continuing through into our discussion today, as I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, what the overarching theme of this record is but Morgan do you want to go into it in a little bit more detail and talk about how the theme interacts with what this record sounds like and how you experienced it
2: a little over a year ago now Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins passed away that has affected this album in particular which is practically a concept album except that the the stories told here are just very much things that happened, uh, things that Dave and the band felt in the wake of this tragedy. It's sort of easy to forget that as joyous as Foo Fighters pretty much always is, the band is sort of on a foundation of tragedy. The self-titled Foo Fighters album it was released a little over a year after Kurt Cobain's passing. So it's become clear to us just from the nature of following the Dave Grohl's career, this is what he does when something bad happens. If I want to draw a point of comparison, it says much about the absence of someone as an album like Injustice for All is. It's a presence and a lack of a presence that informs the music. Almost solely and the, the varieties of directions that the album as a whole spins out from all come back to that central point.
1: What's interesting about this album contextually in terms of like the framing of Foo Fighters narrative, you know, this is the drummer of Nirvana's new band, you know, essentially that first album was all but completely recorded by Day with I think one guitar part contributed by Greg Dully of Afghan Wigs, but it was made basically just like one guy, you know, sort of striking out on his own, sort of establishing things and sort of expressing himself musically in a way that he hadn't really had the chance to yet. But what's interesting about you know, Dave is a writer and the Foods is a band is that while they have a number of incredibly emotional songs and Dave's an incredibly powerful performer, I don't typically think of him as someone who dwells in sentimentality on a personal individual level all that much. And is, or at least he hasn't done that for a very long time, you know, The Foo Fighters have kind of gathered this reputation as being like kind of a populist rock band. You know what I mean? They're uncontroversial. They're difficult to hate. They're very reliable. They're very dependable. They don't often take huge creative risks or at least they haven't in some time, but they follow their heart and they have this kind of wholesome energy of these guys who love each other very much, who've been together for a very long time and just like getting out there and playing rock songs. And it's this very cultivated image that they've had that has kind of made them less interesting to talk about artistically, but also easier to just admire and root for as people and as this kind of, you know, reliable, sturdy band that you can always count on being there. You know what I mean? Even if they're not going to be you know, risking a whole lot or or being all that daring all that often because that's just not in their natures anymore. And I think that the Foo Fighters, the one thing that this album shows is that the Foo Fighters aren't going anywhere. I believe that Dave Grohl will be making Foo Fighters records when he is 90. I don't think he will ever stop. I don't think he knows <laughs> how to stop. I think this band will, no matter what they experience, no matter what they go through, this band will endure because there is the sense of it existing as a foundation and it existing as an outlet and it not necessarily being dependent on anything except for the desire to be with your friends and make music and tour and travel and get to express that to to thousands and if not millions of people um so Dave's avoidance of sentimentality on a personal level, you know, he hasn't really gotten opened up about his own life or his own experiences in a hugely dramatic level of detail in a long time. The fact that this album is as nakedly expressive as it is and as just completely blunt and direct about, this is about Taylor Hawkins passing away and how Dave responded to that. You know, there's no two ways about it. You know, even compared to other bands in the past who might have made similar records and similar positions, Dave is even more direct and just kind of completely unguarded about what these songs are about. And, you know, there's also the important thread as well is that not all these songs are just about Taylor. You know, Dave also lost his mother as well, who, who lived to, I'm sure, I believe a pretty right old age, but still that passing would have been tough for him. And she's the subject of songs here, like The Teacher as well, which we'll get to when we talk about the album in a little bit more detail. So this is an album, you know, structured around loss, both with in terms of the loss of a core band member, more principally the loss of a friend, but overarching between these two figures, the loss of someone very close to you who you love, who's had a profound effect on your whole life and it's stark to hear Dave being so just direct and just so completely naked about his feelings and about what he's experiencing and just just putting it out there in a not even a really poetic but just a diaristic and just blunt way you know i'm missing you you're gone it hurts right and that's met beautifully with the stripped-back simplicity of the album, which is interesting sonically and has a particular flavor that's more than just, you know, a stripped-back, back-to-basic sound, but I'll get to that in a little bit. Jake, what are your thoughts on, I mean, because we've talked about the Foo Fighters, you know, they've kind of evolved into a, a a late period where, you know, you and I maybe haven't been as engrossed with them in the latter period of their career as Morgan has, so what's your kind of perspective? expectation going into it and what's your kind of overall feeling on where the Foo Fighters are at and how they've materialized this particular record I kind of
0: think I fall in the middle of the gradient in terms of our specific inclinations towards the Foo Fighters probably I think I'm a little bit more fond of the band than Riley but less fond of the band than Morgan which I mean it's all relative because we are all fans but this band have always had like a little bit of a ceiling with me Um, That's not to say that I don't think they have great albums and albums that I love. They absolutely do. And I absolutely love a decent number of them. Albeit reluctantly, I am kind of a concrete and gold defender. Um, That that album has a lot of problems, but I, I am still kind of enamored with how fundamentally all of the songs on there are still about as rock solid as anything of the band have ever made. And I really think that that's more due to the production style of the album that caused it to be received the way that it was. And then there's Medicine at Midnight, which just kind of felt like it was a grab bag of ideas that, like, there was just real no sense of commitment. There was a, a kind of lackadaisical approach to the sound of the construction, which, I mean, it is nice to see the foos let loose a little bit and kind of be a little bit more... I guess, consciously irreverent with their sound, but it just didn't yield much that was particularly memorable or really even all that much fun to listen to. And that's kind of the gauge by which I get on board with Foo Fighters is that it's like, how powerful and anthemic is this music? How, like, this is you kind of refer to them as a populist band. I kind of think of the Foo Fighters in the same respect that I think of Oasis, at least early Oasis, just, you know, for, you know, Americans. And that they have the same kind of big stadium rock, see this band live, have your life changed kind of appeal. And so on the one hand, I was really apprehensive going into this just because While I am, again, a reluctant concrete and gold defender, that is still an album that I have a tough time returning to outside, like the singles, like T-Shirt and Run, which are great songs. But the album as a whole gives me ear fatigue. It's It's a really busy album that just feels like it's cramming a lot of stuff into these mixes to where they are way heavier than they can actually carry. And that's relevant when it comes to the style of this album because, honestly, it's really not totally dissimilar But I do have thoughts on how it is executed distinctly differently, which has led to a huge disparity into how this album has been received and how that album was received. Because seeing like major like indie writers or just like blog people now be like, yeah, this new Foo Fighters album is great. It's just not really something that I'm used to seeing, but it nonetheless has kind of happened. And generally the consensus is if you don't outright think this album is great, then it's still their best album in like 10 years. And yeah. I agree. Honestly, there, there's there's really not much to stray from when it comes to me, so I, I won't really get into the, the nitty-gritty of the details of, like, the songs and what have you, just because I think you guys are a little bit more equipped to do that than me. But what I do want to talk about for a moment is the production style. Specifically, the C word. Compression. This album is compressed. I mean, like, there's no way around it. Like, every instrumental on here is kind of blown up it's bigger some of them are kind of staticky and hazy and way 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 bigger because they they're trying to achieve that big stadium rock anthemic sound and the thing is is that the Foo Fighters this far into their career and Dave Grohl they are so great at doing this whenever they just kind of cut the bullshit and decide to do it that when you marry that with the inherent emotionality of the past year of Dave Grohl's life, you get an album that feels particularly special, but also something that I really respect them for doing, which is like, this is not the Foo Fighters sad album. This is not them taking a new direction because of what's happened. It is them using an excuse to play to their strengths even stronger than they have been, and to add in the extra emotional spice. Because all of these songs, again, as Riley said, they are very blanketly about what they are about. I mean, from the moment you hear the opening lyrics of Rescued, there's no illusions as to what this is going to be like. But the 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 power of these instrumentals comes from their core compositions. It comes from the raw musicianship and you know the drumming, the guitar work on here all of it's really excellent. The riffs are driving, they're full of momentum, they're powerful. Even the mid-tempo moments on this album, which Foo Fighters have kind of struggled with, even uh, at my most lukewarmly defensible uh, takes on some of their albums as of late, uh, some of their mid-tempo cuts just don't really do much for me. Here on the other hand, again, they have an added weight and they have a kind of versatility that all of the, the lyrical elements kind of fill in the gaps of if the instrumental ones don't outright do that. What separates this album from an album like Concrete and Gold, which is, again, superficially very similar in a lot of respects, is that it's less busy than that album. On Concrete and Gold, it just sort of felt like they their stadium rock ambitions have gone so over the hill that fitting all of these guitars fitting all of these melodies these rhythms they just they're shoving so much shit that it's just it becomes a bit too much to bear at times whereas here the compression is in service of songs that are stripped back compositionally you can isolate everything on here. I mean, the bass is a little bit quiet, but for the most part, everything on here is legible, and the compression accomplishes something that it didn't before, where, yeah, it sounds loud and anthemic and driving, but also creates kind of an atmosphere on here that really kind of works in tandem with the melancholic mood of the lyrics. It never stops being an awesome ass-kicking Foo Fighters album. It's a really consistent record, in fact. But this sound lends it a kind of, I don't know, a haziness that really the band haven't played with before. And I find that to be particularly compelling because when it has those more hooky or melodic or just those standout moments where they do divert from the formula, it really makes these things cut through everything and leap out at you. Like particularly on moments like Show Me How, which has backing vocals from Violet Grohl, which are gorgeous. Like, oh my god, they're beautiful. Or just the hooks on all of these songs, too, which are fantastic. Like, Under You, this has got to be one of my favorite songs that the foos have put out in a good-ass while. The Again, the platonic ideal of what you want, from a badass, ass-kicking, I want to see this live as soon as possible stadium rock song. Grohl's lyricism is not really all that different from how it has been in the past, but there are just moments on here where it kind of sticks out at you and you're just like, there's no getting past what this thing is all about. And you really feel it, but it still never gets in the way of being a great Foo Fighters album. And that's the best compliment I can give it.
2: On a macro level, this contains a handful of some of my favorite Foo Fighters songs since Sonic Highways, because I will not be offering a lukewarm defense of Sonic Highways. I will be offering a, a defense that I put my whole my whole pussy into. um, As you should. Because it's, great, it's a great album. And you're gay if you don't think so. But... Close to a decade since that album came out, this just simply is the, the best set of songs that they've written and since Sonic
1: Highways and if you're if you want to be lame about it, since wasting light there's an interesting conflict with this album in terms of the way it's presented because and I, I this is a good thing and in advance of my thoughts, I want to say this is a good conflict um because there's this on one hand. Here you have Foo Fighters doing what they do best in a certain sense, like making these really larger-than-life songs that feel as though they're built for stadium-sized sing-alongs. You know, Grohl has never been a terribly, like, you know, complicated lyricist, but He's not, because his whole thing is crafting these very anthemic choruses and lines that you can just sing along to and feel in a very kind of straightforward emotive from the gut level, right? So the choruses on these songs are very straightforward. They're things you can just fucking belt. They're not things that you need to learn. They They just feel primal right so there's that aspect of what the Foo's have always been great at that dave's leaning into but then there is as you mentioned jack there's this production style which is quite compressed which is quite harsh which almost feels as though it's a little bit at conflict with this desire to make stadium-sized songs and it's this conflict at least as i perceive it that gives this album one of its most fascinating and affecting characteristics which is the sense with which what the foods do is they make this larger than life anthemic music about connect, that connects to people that transcends these barriers that reaches out and how do you do that when this core fundamental from the heart element? of who you are that makes you able to do that is gone is dead is has has left you right how do you make these anthems how do you reach these breach people in an uplifting way because Foo's have been an uplifting band for the last 20 years at least how do you do that when you are fundamentally stricken by a grief and by an absence that completely stands in the way of that ambition you know for 20 years at least Dave Grohl from my perspective anyway, he's been someone who has not wanted to dwell in negativity, who has wanted to create this uplifting music. And he's put in a position where there is just a complete barrier to that goal that has defined the last two decades of Foo Fighters. So how do you reconcile it? And that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this album is the tension that exists there between Dave wanting to make a particular kind of record, but also having to confront the fact That this grief, this gaping absence, is a direct barrier to achieving that. And there's a kind of sense of the passage of grief that carries across this album as well. Lots of the early part of the record is about just being stricken and stunned and kind of like, you know, slapped in the face by grief towards the end of the record, where, you know, through songs like Show Me How and into songs like The Teacher and Rest at the End, there is this sense of of growth through the grief process of learning to continue and not letting the loss stop you from achieving what you were born to do with that person, even though that person isn't there anymore. And that tension that carries across this record animates and gives such a gnarly edge to so many of these songs like rescued and under you were an incredible one two punch opening just really laying bare the nakedness of that emotion one of the things that i like most about this more compressed and rough production style is the kind of scratch and rasp that it gives to dave's voice i mean look dave is someone yeah. who's been singing in this way for 30 years almost you know he's been really pushing his vocal cords for a long time and you could understand that his vocal cords must be under some level of strain. Now he's growing old, no matter how healthy his lifestyle is, you can only sustain that for so long. So you can feel how weathered his voice is. And I'm not saying the production, you know, gives it that weatheredness. I'm saying it exists and the production accentuates it and brings the rest of the music and the rest of the sound of the record to the same kind of place of strain, of, you know, of age, of this sense of weight that comes with, having done this for so long nothing on this record sounds like it comes easily for as straightforward as the album is there's a, a sense of labored energy to it that makes the emotion hit all that harder it's like these guys are forcing themselves into this process of creation as a means of therapeutically processing this loss And it hits really, really hard throughout it. One of my favorite songs is the title track. It just has this energy to Dave's vocal performance. And that refrain of, I gave you my heart, but here we are. is so devastating. You know, it's like, I I gave you everything. And it's not like a celebration of that friendship. It's At that point in time, it's just a fucking mourning of a loss that feels like it is unfair. Which it is. You know, all grief is unfair. To a certain degree. And I like that, you know, contorted being torn between illusion and reality. Caught an illusion, not an illusion, waiting, fading, innocence. It's a punctual album, you know, it's not an album that that overcomplicates these emotional states. It presents them in a very almost two-dimensional way but through that process enhances them um, for the audience. And there are some songs that are a little too monotonous for me, like nothing at all and beyond me, but still work because they channel that monotony into a brutal part of the process of grieving. I adore yeah. this album and I love the way that it traces this progress, this process of grief through to the incredible one-two punch finale of The Teacher and Rest, which alongside the title track are my favorite songs here. I I I I could wax lyrical for indefinitely about how I adore the way the teacher is structured, how I love the way the song continues building and introducing new sections, but maintaining a sense of cohesion. I could throw all that critical, you know, shorthand out there and be very, very obvious about it. But it's just it's unbelievably effective and powerful to the point where its culminating finale ending in Dave's screams of goodbye as he's suffocated by the compression overwhelming him. It's just the most cathartic thing. And rest as an epilogue to that, contrasting the sparseness of its first half with the crushing, almost sludgy, doomy feel of its heavy second half. Is as, as Pointed of a conclusion to the arc of grief as you could possibly get you know at a certain point you have to put them to rest you have to watch them go in the ground and you have to say goodbye but here we are presents the journey towards that moment and then the hard reality of that moment of that actual saying goodbye as well as anything that i've heard i mean we could spend all day comparing it and saying it's the best album since this or it echoes this or it does this or this or this to me i don't think food faders have ever made an album quite like this to be honest and in comparisons only do it an injustice it's a standalone moment it's an album that definitely feels like a hard reset out of necessity it completely bucks from the trend of where they were heading because it has to and i would not be surprised if whatever comes next sounds nothing like it Uh, It is a pure expression of frustration, a howl of grief, a therapeutic exercise and healing. And it demands you approach it and treat it as such. And it offers you an excuse to use it as a way of healing in your own way, whether that's grieving your own loss or grieving the loss of Taylor Hawkins as much as the bandits. It is a lifeline for you and it is clearly an exercise and healing for each man on it.
2: And you know, really like how it acknowledges how non-linear grief is. Because, I mean, the progression is like rescued. That's basically in media res. And then under you is a time after that where the message of it is essentially like, I don't know if I can get over this, but someday I'm going to have to and the fact that those things can coexist and how difficult that is to emotionally reckon with and then hearing voices is like so haunted and despondent about the entire thing that's a tough yeah i like uh, that that one's got a line on
0: it where it's like where he talks about like I'm hearing voices, but like not knowing if it's like one particular person and you just know it's like, how many ghosts is Dave Grohl living with? Like, how many shadows do you think are being cast over his incredibly like he's successful, of course, but it's like there's some part of him that's always going to exist in the wake of something else. And it must be incredibly fucking difficult to live with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a complicated and weighty progression. It almost could be criticized for almost coming across as wishy-washy in terms of like, oh, I think I might have to get over this. And then next is, I don't know, I'm just in the thick of this and I can't see a way out of it. But it's true to how that goes is that some days you think you're processing this thing and then you, I mean, you literally like wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day and it's like you back to square one. Welcome to what it's like. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's almost like a, a stream of consciousness type album in some ways for a group of musicians this storied and who have been working in this realm for as long as they have. None of it's like entirely outside of the wheelhouse for Foo Fighters musically. But you're not going to have the moment at the end of Hearing Voices where it switches to what I have to assume is the demo of it uh, with just the acoustic guitar, Dave's voice, and piano over it. And you're not going to have the final sort of climactic moment of rest, uh, which has an interpolation of the lead guitar line from Congregation off of Sonic Highways in it, which, I, I mean, I, I lost my mind when I first heard I was like and I still I still don't really know what that means but like it just
1: works I I think the first eight songs of this album are each about being stuck inside a moment and a feeling and then it's like with the last teacher it's kind of learning to break free of that and part of what makes that song so powerful as well is the, the way that it more overtly breaks from the narrative of the loss of taylor to deal with the loss of dave's mother and also use that story or use that loss as a way of kind of dave exploring how she taught him to be the kind of person he is how she taught him to heal i mean she was actually a school teacher i'm pretty sure so there's a kind of parallel there between what she did while she was on earth and then how she raised dave and how she kind of instilled within dave the ability to be able to survive these kinds of tragedies and that confronting that and mourning her death but also reflecting on what she as a mother instilled within him is what ultimately is able to get him across the final hurdle to saying goodbye at the end of that song and then laying to rest with the finale it, it feels very recognizably foos at the same time, but I also thought of a number of other bands that I would never have associated the foos with. There's a little bit of a post-punk revival sound to the teacher that reminded me a little bit uh-huh. of Interpol and Block Party. There's a little bit of a Cymbals Eat Guitars sound to some of these songs as well, specifically the album Lose, which is one of my favorite indie rock albums of the Yeah, yeah. This reminded me of... And so, yeah, it, 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 it's very straightforward. It's very down the line. But at the same time, it's co- it's contradictorily expansive and, and exploratory. I mean,
2: like, it's the 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 part where Rest explodes reminds me of Mogwai of all bands. Yeah, I mean, they're, like, they're, the yeah. Of that
1: song is very true to the Mogwai loud, quiet dynamics in the way that they use that crushing heft. It's just masterful. Okay, shall we do our favorite tracks and ratings then for... Fue fighters, but here we are.
0: Three favorite tracks for me: I "Gotta Be Under You," "Rest," absolutely, just a, a a perfect ending to this album. And yeah, I I, I can't not say, the "Teacher," it's the most ambitious moment on here, and it's just executed with flying colors. Uh, least favorite song on here is definitely "The Glass." um it's the only song on here that feels underdeveloped to me i understand putting it where they do structurally and in spirit i agree with the decision to do that it just also offers the least to me in terms of what this album provides so it's certainly that but it doesn't really weigh the album down it's still like fundamentally a a decent enough song um Eight out of 10. I, I never thought I would be, give a Foo Fighters album such a high score again after the last couple of records, but here we are.
2: Right, my three favorites are uh, yeah, I think Rest is what it is, Under You, and Show Me How. My least favorite is probably Beyond Me, which is a song that I like, but I think it's like, I, I honestly find it a little plain for this album. But uh, I don't know. I like it well enough. Uh, and overall, this gets an eight and a half out of 10.
1: Yeah, my three favorites are mm-hmm. But Here We Are, The Teacher, and Rest. But, you know, shout out to Show Me How. And I actually will give a, a lukewarm. It's not one of my favorites, but I do quite like The Glass as well. Um, I think the album is just remarkably consistent. Yes, there are moments that mm-hmm. it risks becoming a little bit stale. I am I, not terribly fond of uh, nothing at all or beyond me as i mentioned before but there there's enough there there's enough muscularity there to bring those songs up to a certain level Uh, i don't really think the album really has any particular valleys uh so yeah i think the album is really really strong i'm going to give it an emphatic 7.5 which gives us an average of 8.0 for foo fighters but here we are All right, let's move into our second review of the day now, which is the new album from Proto Martyr, the Detroit-based post-punk band, responsible for incredible albums such as Under Color of Official Right, Relatives in Descent, one of my favorite post-punk albums of the 2010s, and of course, 2020's Ultimate Success Today, one of the first albums we reviewed in the early era of this podcast. And... I mean, we reviewed that album, which came out at the height of a certain event that happened in the first year of this decade that we can't talk about. The Backstreet
0: Boys reunion tour.
1: Without getting demonetized. And, like, while the album was ostensibly written before the major event of 2020 that I can't talk about without being demonetized, it certainly, as we experienced it, reflected a lot of the ugly things that we were going through the difficult emotions of that time it's a very dark and despondent album i remember distinctly morgan talking about i don't think he was even on that episode i can't re-
2: no i think that was the first ever episode i sat out
1: yeah because yep. it was just like it was too difficult of an album to address and i love that album still but it's it is so mired in despondency that it is difficult to approach even for proto Matter. And I remember around the time that album came out, I remember reading an interview with Joe Casey that was so bleak. Painted a picture of him essentially wasting away in his apartment and just so disillusioned with the idea of being in a band because of how financially difficult it was to be in a band, but also because of how uninspired he felt. And I genuinely thought Ultimate Success Today would be the last Proto-Matter album. I just assumed that... Not necessarily because yeah. they would never be inspired again, but because the situation for being able to sustain yourselves as a band had gotten so difficult. But thankfully, you know, they've still managed to achieve a certain level of success uh, within their niche that has sustained them. And we have a follow up to that album with 2023's formal growth in the desert. And I'm pleased to say as well that Proto Mata have lost none of what makes them so compelling as a rock band they don't like talking about themselves in the context of post-punk and i know that joe casey kind of just despises the whole discussion of post-punk revival and of the post-punk aesthetics protomater are a very distinctly michigan rock band that talk about a lot of emotions that a lot of people and again i speak as an outsider but People who have lived in Detroit or have lived in that kind of metropolitan area that's so subsumed by halting the halting of progress and the encroaching apocalyptic dread of automation. These are themes that carry through all of Prodomato's work, and there's a very strong core of this deadened existence within a landscape laid waste by progress. You know the 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 march, the insistent march of progress that has only brought with it, you know, an increasing divide in wealth between the rich and the poor, a disillusionment uh, from progress that has infected uh, a lot of people in midwestern America, and yeah, a sense of deadened and stasis basically what's interesting about this album is that they deliberately got away from michigan to record it It it's recorded at the sonic ranch which is a studio in the middle of the texas desert and it has this Hmm. sparseness to it you can feel the influence of the desert you can feel the influence of the west on this album and not just in the newly found presence of pedal steel guitar which uh guitarist and main compositional wizard kid greg ahi talks a lot about in interviews about how difficult it was to actually compose for that instrument because it's a deceptively hard instrument to play but basically what you get with this album is a less industrial a less kind of claustrophobic and city dwelling feel and a more kind of open-ended vibrant and i would say even compositionally dense sound uh Greg even described it as the band's first headphones album in a sense that while their records have always been immaculately produced and full of great hefty sounds, this one has, I think, a little bit more going on in these soundscapes than you might expect, particularly after how crushingly monotonous Ultimate Success today could be. No one would ever mistake this for any other band. I'm not saying that this is a dramatic reinvention, but it is a refinement. It is a subtle evolution that comes with a slight shift in perspective from frontman Joe Casey as well. Make no mistake, I've got notes on these songs. They're pretty dark for the most part. You know, they deal with very common themes that have been explored on previous Proto-Matter albums, but there's a slight bent of, if not outright optimism, then at least a kind of sideways glance at these issues that has a little bit more of a tongue-in-cheek approach to them, In some elements, a little bit more of a kind of satirical bent, in some elements, too, that showcases how Joe is less mired and overwhelmed by suffocating depression and more able to kind of distance himself from the things that he's writing about. And as a result of that, be just as scathing and just as brutal about them, but also a little bit more distanced from them. It's kind of hard to review this album, to be honest, because it's on one hand, very much another proto matter album, but also the things that make it different are quite subtle, and are quite um, difficult to describe. But um, we'll we'll get into it anyway. Uh, overarching themes before we kind of delve delve into the album with more detail. Um, what are you guys? What are you guys' thoughts on this album, particularly as it compares to their last album?
2: As much as one can love an album like Ultimate Success today, as much as I did love it, For More Growth in the Desert finds them. I think energized and motivated in a way that just was not present on ultimate success today. There's an urgency to something like, uh, elimination dances that you don't really see on even the most bombastic moments on ultimate success today, like the eternal process by the boys. I almost called it decaying with the boys, but that's an every time I die song. Um, (laughs) But even even on that album's most bombastic moments, there's a sort of lurking hunger on so much of this album that isn't present there. And as someone who is also worried about the future of this band, as someone who's come to be very fond of albums like Relatives and Descent and uh, Ultimate Success today, it's just nice to have them back, to have them go, hey, we're still here and we're still innovating within our own sphere and making the music that we want to make. That's why it's sort of hard for me to be like mad about the fact that this is another proto-martyr album.
1: They're, they're kind of like the national to a certain extent, where it's like from like twenty oh seven from like Boxer onwards to a certain extent, where it's like they figured out what they do and they're not fucking, yeah. they're not messing with it too much. I honestly don't think there's a, a much of any disparate difference in quality between this and ultimate success today it's just that that album in adopting such a despondent and pessimistic viewpoint which felt very truthful and still does feel very truthful to its moment had a kind of inherent limitation to it because it was just so deadened and it's a record that I have to be in a very particular mood to listen to in full whereas this record just again it has a similarly pessimistic approach at certain points but it's not so consumed by that And there is, again, a little bit more light. I think, again, it's subtle, but in the compositions themselves, there's a little bit more experimentation. There's a little bit more of a fleshing out in some of these songs than what you got on uh, that previous album. And in fact, Joe and... Greg have talked about how on previous records they kind of hated ending songs like writing endings they kind of just liked letting songs just end really really abruptly and moving on to the next thing and that's a big characteristic of records like under color of official right but this is like an album where there's a little bit more space in these songs and you get surprising moments as well like the outro to the author which is just an instrumental outro that sees the the song kind of expanding and exploring its ideas in a more atmospheric space that they would never have done on a previous record. Jake, what are your thoughts as someone who is positive on proto matter as well but I know was hoping for something a little bit more that would grab you a little bit more than the last record did.
0: Well, I'm I'm very much in the same camp as you guys when it comes to albums like Relatives and Descent. That was an album that I mean, I heard that even before I met Riley and I was just like this is fucking great like i i like half sisters like in like the permanent lexicon of the best post-punk songs of the last decade and i liked ultimate success today a lot but i also found it like woefully impenetrable both thematically and sonically it was just an album that felt suffocating and in that respect it's like artistically successful but the the sort of breathing room that was on something like relatives and descent that created a a sense of mood and really made me want to keep coming back to that album uh the sort of balancing act that they played was a, a bit more well achieved there whereas on ultimate success today it's just this very blocky driving monotonous monochromatic experience that's just totally unrelenting and it Totally yields some of their best songs, like Processed by the Boys, which co-signed. It's a great song. I don't really think there's anything subpar on that album either. It's just, it's a difficult album to get into. I don't think a lot of people would argue that it's not successful, but it's also just something that's difficult to connect with if you're not really in the mood for its very, very specific kind of apocalyptic dourness, and in that respect, honestly... Formal Growth in the Desert is literally everything I could have wanted in a follow up to that album in terms of hooking me, kind of like, not that I lost the band or anything, but assuring me that they are still interested in aspects of their sound that I latch onto personally there is a sense of sprawling narrative to this that maybe the structures of the song kind of play into there is a lot of shorter songs on here within like the the two two and a half minute range and instead of finding those to be insubstantial i find this album to be i don't want to say colorful because for proto-martyr that feels wrong But I also don't want to say it's, like I said with the last album, monochromatic. So I guess the right word I'm looking for is grayscale? There's just a lot of flourishes here and a lot of instrumental ideas, particularly some of the guitar licks on here that just add definition and and details to these songs that I latch on to and really get along with. There's, a, th- there's more of an up-tempo approach to the baseline of this album that makes it feel like it moves a bit faster. It's not quite mired like the previous album is. And so it's easy to get into the momentous swing of this a bit more. It also helps that Joe Casey's a dude who... If you're not, like, totally into this deep post-punk, very, like, again, monotonous drawl that he has, kind of impenetrable, difficult to get into, but... My god, does he really lean into the Nick Cave of it all on this album? I mean, like there are points where he's just fucking indistinguishable from him on Let Love. Him. Yeah, I to say Let Love and yes,
1: in particular that one.
0: <laughs> Here everything feels a little bit more lyrical. Uh the guitar work even also feels a little bit more lyrical. It feels a bit more Blowing. There are moments on here where I'm reminded of, like, pornography era The Cure, uh, for instance, that really add to, again, again, it's it's not quite color, but there is kind of a, a, a saturation here that really does feel like it spices things up variety-wise. And the way that this album just kind of moves from song to song is super satisfying. It kind of goes back to the title, the idea of formal growth in the desert. It's such a contradictory title to the point where it's like you have this image of this desolate landscape and the idea of regimented progress and that's that's like a a lot of what makes the lyrical content a little bit more thorny and interesting to dive into from my perspective anyway it achieves a kind of moodiness that again you talked about the space that's in these songs and the space between each other that it really capitalizes on to the point where i can really marinate in this record and enjoy it and kind of soak it in in a way i wasn't able to with the last one there's the the songs on here have this patent i think the best way to put it is absurdity in many ways this is just as bleak of a record as the album before but it kind of looks at it in a way that does it with a sort of cosmic imbalance almost that that just makes it a bit more palatable i think and it's it's mostly successful the 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 album's least successful moments to me are when it becomes the most literal I think it's kind of all piled into probably my least favorite moment on the album, which is Fulfillment Center, which is just sort of like a moment where all of the potential issues I could have with this album, which are basically nowhere else, all kind of crystallize onto a song that feels like it doesn't develop enough musically or have enough detail in it for me to latch onto and also lyrically it's just kind of so flat on its face there's nothing that i I extrapolate from it that i feel like is is dissective, like the rest of the lyricism on here it's it's really the only point on the album where I, i kind of feel this way just because the rest of it maintains that balancing act so well but like that's that's a very small like i mean that's less than two minutes on this album that is shorter. I mean, sure, it's thirty-seven minutes, but again, they really make great use out of that length. I'm just, I'm very happy to be on board fully, a hundred percent with this band again.
1: The title, I think, is really interesting and quite funny and fitting once you kind of get a handle on the sorts of themes that Joe talks about on this album. So, formal growth in the desert. So it evokes this idea of, of I guess, industrialization, right? Because you know, it was a grand desert that essentially has been kind of, you know colonized and turned into this sort of alien landscape essentially by human beings you know relative to what it once was but what i also like about that title is that it hints at a theme that is core to this album which is joe casey's utter bemusement and contempt for technocrats for the kind of movement forward of people who kind of speak in a particular lingo and use a particular language to kind of cushion the intrusion of artificial intelligence of
0: this album does not like Silicon Valley. No,
1: exactly. Right. And formal growth in the desert is, I think, a nice evocation of the kind of way that they speak and a good, um, you know, a kind of way in which they would dispassionately use those sorts of words to describe something like a city, for instance. And this really comes to the fore in one of my favorite songs on the record which is let's tip the creator which has a very wry and satirical and sort of snarling view of this sort of billionaire class the this song was specifically inspired by joe casey watching mark zuckerberg's horrifically alien presentation of the metaverse and specifically, this idea of like, hey, in this in this you know entirely constructed uh, artificial world, it's a it's a new landscape for the presentation of art to be appreciated, and you can like tip the creator, and you can like kind of you know show your appreciation. And Casey's just kind of was just sort of horrified and disgusted by the way in which art was reduced to this kind of like thing to be commodified and and viewed in the through through this very particular lens, and he. Again, in a particularly smarmy and literate and ultimately strangely affecting way, he describes this perspective through his own lens. And One of the most compelling lyrics on the whole album to me is the line, just to know that in theory you can hear me, though in fact you don't, is all I need. Which is a very scathing portrayal of this fake caring, essentially, that's presented by the billionaire class. This idea of, like, yeah, we're going to create a landscape where all voices are equal as long as I don't have to listen to you. You know what I mean? It's, uh... oh God. And then, of course, Casey's never able to inhabit that mind space for very long without ultimately just getting really pissed off. And he, 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 he talks about, and he goes to appreciate the beauty of outsider art while sycophants burn in lithium fire. Sugar Mountain was imagining a space sending a link of aesthetic graves to his array of disappointing nephews. Wouldn't you rather wipe the sweat from your brow than have them knock it off? It's a very funny, but in a very like slanted way song that I absolutely love. There is some high concept stuff on here as well. Some fun explorations with wordplay, but also this dystopian technocratic future theme on a song like 3,800 Tigers, which refers to the number of tigers that are currently existing in the world and imagines this dystopian oh. futuristic baseball game, basically, because baseball's hugely important to Joe and Detroit's team, I'm pretty sure is the Tigers. And so, yes, it is. So, Joe kind of fantasizes about this like dystopian future where baseball is this like endless endurance test where the games kind of go on for years essentially while the players are kind of worn down, which essentially is not baseball. You're just describing cricket, but that's fine. <laughs> um, and he kind of has this wordplay where in his repetition of eat them up now, eat them up now, eat em up, tigers. You have this kind of like dynamic of, of the chanting at a Tiger's baseball game and also the kind of dispassionate attitude towards the abuse and murder of animals in the wild. It's, it's a really gnarly and ugly song, but it's really made by the sense of humor that comes through in that juxtaposition, and that association. Um, it's also worth noting as well that structure is super important to Proto Protomata. Like they really care about how their albums are structured, to the point where they agonize over trackless sequencing. And that was a big theme in the interview I read with them on Stereogum, where they talked about how important it was to have a sense of coherence. And with the pedal steel guitar that shows up in opener and make way, which really sets this kind of hot desert landscape, moving towards the rich, bountiful, literal garden of the closing track. There's this journey that the album wants to take you on, essentially, of kind of overcoming and moving through this desolation and finally learning how to embrace and find something that has actual life in it that you can live inside of and and bring into yourself. And part of this as well is inspired by the fact that, you know, Joe, Joe Casey got engaged and he's got a stable life now and he's in a much better place than he was when he wrote the last album. So that means that rain garden keeps good to the, hear. Uh, the first ever love song that he's written but it's not just a love song to his fiance as well it's specifically a song inspired by a moment that he had in a garden by a parking lot behind a tim hortons on the the interstate (laughs) where he realized that he was deserving of love this very specific and oddly affecting real experience that he had And ultimately, it works as both a song of devotion to his partner, but also a song of recognition that you are, you know, an actual being deserving of being loved. He is able to kind of embrace this and welcome that warmth into his life to the point where, in very Matt Berninger-esque fashion, he espouses lines like, my love is a feast, I am drunk on them, we sleep honey on the lips, sugar under the tongue, in the vineyards of the night, they are the queen of the night, my love, my love, make way for my love, which is a beautiful callback to the first song, and just like Half Sister calls back to Private Understanding with the She's Just Trying to Reach You lyric on that album. This calls back beautifully as well. And hearing Joe in such a kind of, uh, in such a, I mean, this makes for a stark contrast with the close of the last album, *Worm in Heaven, which is one of the most just just depressing songs I think I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. This is like such a beautiful contrast to that. And all the things that Gregor, he's doing musically as well on this track in particular, really stand out as just stunning in every respect. I want to double back and shout out another song I absolutely love called We Know The Rats, which is a a story about how Casey's Detroit home was burgled twice uh, in short succession. And basically it's a song about, how he kind of can't really be mad at the people who burgled him just because of the nature of the way that detroit is and the fact that the cops are worse than useless like he tells in an interview he describes like calling the cops after one of these burglaries and essentially the first thing they asked him is do you own a gun and when he said no he's like they basically treated him as though he got what he deserved for not defending himself
0: jesus christ Um,
1: and so that this 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 song kind of takes in that experience that Joe had and turns it into this very typically proto-matter style scathing anti-cop song with some of the most brutal lyrics on the album. We know the rats call the cops, see what they do, scam calls for the wrong address, clever pigs never getting stressed. Uh, my favorite lyrical section on the entire album. We know the rats see their decadence. The spite they hide a tattered rag of piety, we know the rats their cankered wealth. When they weep and howl, then we'll know them better. Oh, just this. Rats return to take their bow. Yeah, yeah.
0: That I, I love how this whole band can be aptly described as just can't have shit in Detroit.
1: <laughs> can't have any emotional stability in
2: Detroit. Can um... only have shit. Tim Hortons.
1: Yeah. That's it. That's the only place. There's like, there's more storytelling throughout this record as well. There's these character studies that Joe does of these, of people who are kind of particularly lost in their aimless nostalgia and content to let their glory days define them to the point where they become actively toxic when confronted with any nature of progression that comes through particularly in the song fun in high school which is just i i really love when <laughs> joe just gets you can clearly tell that joe is writing about this figure whether real or imaginary that he just fucking despises in every sense of the word this remember when things were good real tony soprano ask attitude here remember when things were good remember when you were young demigod and tough skins busts in fills the jelly glasses to the brim hey you old fuck take a chair see if you're gonna win the tontine you'll never see it coming unless you keep your eyes off the screen remember remember the way it used to be the nights are getting rougher gotta keep the mummy entertained Remember, remember when you were young, at least you had fun in high school. Athletic amateurs will damage you if you say the wrong thing. Too bad you haven't said a good thing since the drought of 83. Yeah, you made a friend that was attacked by his heart and died. He had kids that loved him and you have none. You haven't got shit. No kids, no love, no brain. I'd say don't care at all. Insane to live at all. You didn't know the power of the world. I hope you had fun in high school. Like, Jesus, man. But it's it's real, like I know the kind of person he's talking about, the kind of person who just sits there luxuriating and how cool they used to be and completely ignorant to the people around them or to making an actual meaningful difference in the place that they live, right? And it extends to politics as well. I think you could read that song through a very political lens and it would be all the more powerful. You have songs like Palacralex Kid, which is uh, obviously Palacralex being a key ingredient in nicotine gum. And it's this being a song about someone who is so disillusioned and just kind of separated mentally from the world that they live in, that they're content to just be self-destructive and the The language of this song, as well, the way in which he talks about he, he just evokes the feeling of things rotting, of flesh breaking of things being chewed in his gruff staccato delivery. it's It's pure Casey through and through. I'm actually really, really fond of Fulfillment Center, although I do think it is a certainly not one of the highest moments on the on the record in terms of a fully realized idea. What's funny is that in an interview, Joe talked about this song originally being a kind of like 20 minutes open ended sort of like novelistic story that he essentially honed and honed and honed and honed until it was just this tiny Richard Dawson up in here, just this tiny evocative fragment. You know, these two people, Dismas and Dawn, who are depicted on the album cover, who are poor, who are desperately seeking work at a fulfillment center, but can't seem to find it. In this kind of like Kafka-esque by way of McCarthy vision of like being lost in the desert and just aimlessly, desperately seeking something to sustain them, but not water like you would typically get or food like you would typically get, but literally just a dirt poor fulfillment center job it's a really hopeless song and i i like the idea that ultimately it's too depressing of a story to dwell in for very long and i think that the finale of the song where he sings about the frost crawling slowly over us let's hold hands sharing heat i believe we can close our eyes and escape the dream that's you know it's a devastating ending but i also think there is some genuine optimism there that Casey maybe doesn't quite know how to reconcile with the bleakness of the story and there's also songs about you know it's funny both the albums we're reviewing in this video have songs about the death of the front man's mother because graft versus host and the author are both about the loss of Casey's mother Ellen who has a song named directly after her and written for her on their album agent intellect And these are very moving songs as well, particularly the author, which is an incredibly sweet song sung with utter conviction and a beautiful tribute to a clearly profoundly influential figure on Casey's life with one of the most resonant lines on the album, time is the enemy, every gift you see will be taken for sure. That really stuck with me. And yeah, I mean, my thoughts are a little bit discombobulated as they often tend to be, but Yeah, I I found this deeply moving. I found it emotionally evocative. I found those little details, like the introduction of the pedal steel into the sonic landscape, to really add those bursts of color that you were talking about, Jake. And yeah, I have more optimism than ever about the place that Prodamata are in. And I think that if anyone has maybe not checked them out before, or maybe hasn't been interested in them for a while, this is a great record to listen to to kind of get a good idea of them at their core and. At their strongest yep, yep i don't think it's as good overall i don't love it as much as i love um relatives and descent and under color of, yeah, of yeah. official right but i think it's a great album all the same proto one of the most consistent bands doing it can't really fault them great to have them back and this one will continue to be on rotation for me uh my three favorites on the album are palak Relax kid we know the rats and rain garden least favorite is I mean, nothing really stands out to me as particularly weak on this album, much like the Foo Fighters record. I think, I mean, they're almost right next to each other on my year-end ranking, to be honest. Yeah, same. They're well-matched for this discussion. They're just both very, very yep. strong, excellent records. I was on a 7.5 before, but I'm going to edge it up to an 8. I think that this is Proto-Mata at their finest and a record that I wholeheartedly recommend.
2: Three favorites... Rain Garden, We Know the Rats, and Elimination Dances. No real low points for me, as uh, gets an 8 out of 10. For me, three favorite tracks got to be For Tomorrow,
0: Let's Tip the Creator, and Rain Garden. Least favorite track is Fulfillment Center, 7.5 out of 10.
1: All right, that gives us an average overall of 7.8. For Protomata's Formal Growth in the Desert. Let us know what you think of the new Protomata album or the new Foo Fighters album in the comments below. I want to hear your thoughts, want to hear your takes, want to hear where you think they fit in the discography rankings of these bands, as well as how you interpret them, what your takeaway points are, and what you think of some of our thoughts as well. Let us know in the comments below. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us directly, you can hit the join button for just $1 a month, become a member of the Jams and Tea family, get your name and the title call of every video on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us some music to talk about in our Jams and Tea Now episodes, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile. Until next time though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago, Tim Hortons. Always fresh, always Tim Hortons.